welcome to episode 126 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of TBR Podcast, I interview Dr. Gregory Palermo, an assistant teaching professor in the writing program and affiliated faculty of quantitative theory and methods at Emory University. Yeah, so I I look at specifically co-citation analysis. So this is a method of counting the number of times that two, it could be articles or two authors. Uh, There's different ways of doing this depending on what you put your bounds around, right? What you consider the object there. And how many times that, let's say, articles, right, are cited together in yet other articles. Charles, say you authored an article and I I authored another article and then a third person cites both of us uh, in their works cited section. And then another author comes along and cites us both in their works cited section. As that continues to happen, you can start to infer, okay, maybe we have something that binds us in some way, right? Maybe we're thinking about things in the same way. Maybe we're part of a, a similar scholarly tradition, or, you know, maybe there is a an effort to bring together some of the things that we're doing that maybe doesn't originate with us, right? So this is what co-citation does as a method and one of the uses for it it, uh, so it's used to a certain degree in a black boxy way in recommendation algorithms, right, or journal websites, things like that. It's been used to a degree with in web tools to help with research, uh, tools that I introduce my students to sometimes. And it's also used in a field called scientometrics and, you know, closely related to the field of bibliometrics to plot the layout of research areas to map them. You'll hear more from Greg in a bit, but first, I want to let you know about an opportunity with the Online Writing Centers Association, or OWCA. The OWCA is seeking presenters for their upcoming 2023 webinar series. Presenters receive the support of OWCA and a modest stipend of $100 for their presentation and labor. OWCA will give priority to proposals submitted by Friday, March 31st. From the CFP, quote, OWCA webinars provide a space to share experiences, ideas, strategies, and questions about online writing centers. Most OWCA webinars are open to a public audience. They are presented via, via Zoom recorded for posterity, and the recordings remain accessible to OWCA members and the public through the OWCA website. You can read more about OWCA webinars, access recordings, and review materials from past webinar presentations on the OWCA website event archive. OWCA webinars are typically scheduled for one hour and incorporate both presentation and participation elements. A typical webinar will include a presentation on a given topic for approximately the first half of the hour and an interactive discussion or activity for the second half of the hour, emphasizing practical takeaways for audiences looking to implement new ideas in their writing centers. We welcome applications from anyone in the broader Online Writing Centers community. As part of our organization's commitment to anti-racism, we particularly encourage applications from Writing Center scholars and practitioners of diverse backgrounds. You do not have to be an OWCA member to submit an application or to present. However, we encourage you to learn more about the benefits of OWCA membership on the website. If the OWCA Virtual Events Committee selects your application, committee members will collaborate with you to prepare accessible materials for the webinar presentation. You can find examples of accessible materials on the conference website. The OWCA is committed to providing accessible professional development opportunities to the Online Writing Center's community. All webinar presentations include simultaneous ASL interpretation. 
If you have any questions and or concerns, please feel free to reach out to the Virtual Events Committee at events at onlinewritingcenters.org. End quote. Dr. Gregory Palermo, he they, is an assistant teaching professor in the writing program and affiliated faculty of quantitative theory and methods at Emory University. He brings research on the rhetorics of discipline and data into the classroom, facilitating students' synthesis of multiple academic traditions when developing literacy with sources and information. His recent research applies co-citational analysis to identify intellectual bridges across writing studies and digital humanities, centering on the method's rhetorical potential to disrupt marginalizing citation practices. He has published in the Journal of Writing Analytics and Digital Humanities Quarterly, and he serves as co-editor of reviews for the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy. I hope you enjoy the interview. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your name, your title, and your institution, and your role there? Who are you, and what do you do? Yeah, so hi, I'm Gregory Palermo. Um, I'm an assistant teaching professor uh, at Emory University. Um, I'm also um, affiliated faculty in the Department of uh, Quantitative Theory and Methods, in addition to being uh, having my home in the writing program. Um, And uh, right now, I am also a member of the uh, editorial collective for the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy. And uh, uh, my role there right now is uh, as co-editor of the review section. All right, I wanna talk a little bit about JITP in the future of this interview, but first I wanna talk a little about Emory. Um, That's in like downtown, is it in downtown Atlanta? Like a rural, I'm sorry, an urban campus? Or tell us a little bit about the campus, maybe student demographics, classes you're teaching, stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, Emory's not uh, in, uh, you know, within the Atlanta city limits. Um, it is in Metro Atlanta. Um, I'm actually, quite honestly, I live more uh, close to Georgia Tech than I do to uh, to Emory. And uh, since I don't have a, a car, um, I, sometimes I t- there's a shuttle that runs between the two, or either that, or I take the um, the public bus. Um, it's uh, it's pretty easy to get to um, uh, even on the bus, um, and uh, I was uh, driving a moped for a little while. Um, uh, I, I did injure myself, unfortunately, doing that. So um, uh, I'm still. I just got out of a sling, so um, uh, I had oh, broken um, proximal humerus. But um, and I'll spare you the uh, uh, the joke about how that wasn't very funny, nonetheless. But um, uh, so, um, it's, uh, it's a really nice campus. Um, I, I visited here kind of, uh, on short notice after I accepted the job kind of in the dead of, uh, summer, I think it was June on a Saturday. So there were like three people on campus besides me, but, um, it, uh, you know, there, are uh, some, uh, really, um, uh, beautiful buildings, uh, a nice quad. There's also the whole, um, uh, medical campus, right, in the CDC. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, like uh, any other institution, uh, especially I think in the South, um, it has its past to uh, uh, grapple with, right? Um, the the building that I work in is called Callaway Memorial Center, uh, and the Callaways were a slave-owning family. Um, uh, not totally sure where I was going with that, but um, uh, uh, yeah, but it's a, a very wonderful campus um, in a lot of ways. Um, the the students are bright. Uh, they're uh, they are um, uh, 
uh, curious. They, uh, you know, they're very open to uh, the kinds of things that uh, that I want to do with them in terms of inquiry. Um, like I imagine students everywhere uh, are, they are also uh, burned out at the moment, right? And uh, really feeling it. Um, the, it, I'm really enjoying the, the role that um, I've been hired into, which is uh, a teaching track faculty member. Um, uh, one of the, the uh, things that I like most about the position is the uh, relative amount of autonomy that I have in course design um, and uh, that I'm able to bring my, uh, my interests uh, in my research into uh, the classroom in very meaningful ways, um, and also uh, use that as a venue to establish some uh, ancillary interests or teaching, uh, uh, you know, that uh, sort of start with my teaching. Are you from Georgia? I'm not, no. Where are you from? So I'm, I'm originally from Queens in New York City, uh, and uh, I spent the last seven years, I think it is, in, in Boston uh, for grad school. Um, so th this is my first time in the South. So one of the things I um, looked at at some of the materials that, that you sent over before the interview, and this is going way back. So just tell me to talk about something different. <laughs> but your capstone thesis as mm -hmm. an undergraduate is titled Looking for the Alps on the Moon, How English and Physics Are Not That Different. And I don't necessarily expect you to talk off the cuff about this project from eight or 10 years ago. <laughs> but what I'm noticing is that there is a clear research trajectory, right, that that you have followed that your interests uh, based on your interests. And I think that that's really important. So per, especially for um, graduate students and young scholars to think about how their research really starts in their undergraduate experience, right? And so maybe we could hear from you a little about how you have merged physics and English interests and how that has, uh, uh, I don't know, influenced your trajectory as a researcher. Yeah, for sure. Um... Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, the first thing I'll say is um, I, uh, you know, I was a double major um, in English and physics at a small public liberal arts college in Western New York uh, called SUNY Geneseo. Um, and I was also part of the Edgar Fellow Honors Program there, uh, which uh, um, is a, a program with um, uh, interdisciplinary and really, I guess, hyperdisciplinary seminars that are um, uh, encourage the faculty teaching them to be experimental, really, uh, in the teaching that they did. Uh, in my time there, I was on the uh, committee uh, that approved some of those classes as a student member um, and uh, also re reforming the general education committee um, in a different role. But um, the that sort of, um, I was very supported in that environment in uh, maintaining that uh, sort of disciplinary span, right? And and especially in thinking about how uh, uh, they overlapped or finding a common thread um, and uh, especially as part of this capstone experience, uh, that that's what they call it. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of, I had, uh, you know, large uh, ambitions as an undergrad for this project. It was originally going to be a, um, uh, a book for a popular audience. Uh, that's what I kind of had imagined. And I, and I kind of left that behind a little bit, especially um, uh, going to grad school, right, and uh, engaging in some other modes of writing. Um, but uh, it, it was about um, uh, finding a common, really methodological thread between the two fields. Um, so uh, being at, um, at Geneseo uh, in this um, uh, public Slack environment, right? English to me meant literary study, right? Um, I was not really aware at that time of um, the extent of writing and rhetoric as right. a field, right? Um, so, um, you know, I, I originally, I, uh, I had um, 
experience in uh, digital humanities work from a seminar that I took with a, a professor at Geneseo named Paul Schacht. Um, and that, uh, it, you know, I, I worked a little bit while I was at Geneseo on the uh, Digital Faro project. And uh, this for me was a way, uh, digital humanities, I mean, was a way for me to uh, uh, sort of bring some of the methods that, uh, or at least the outlook that I was um, familiar with from my physics background to, uh, uh, to, uh, the, um, uh, to humanistic inquiry. And I, um, uh, at the same time, um, uh, I lost my train of thought there, because um, <laughs> of this one. <laughs> um, Listeners, Aria has made an appearance, I think, which is Greg's cat. Yeah. Um, so this kind of, um, uh, you know, I had originally come to Northeastern thinking that um, I was going to do computational literary study. Right. Um, and that was, uh, uh, you know, I had felt um, more on the English side of things when I, uh, you know, um, kind of spanning those those two fields. I felt uh, kind of like the English person in the room when I was with physics people and then the physics person in the room when I was in the uh, in, uh, you know, my English classes or um, uh, in those environments, right? But I kind of um, aligned a little bit more, I think, with the with the English side uh, in that what I wanted to do. Um, another, uh, you know, another professional trajectory may have had me doing um, uh, concert hall acoustics because that was a um, a project that I was working on for um, the physics degree uh, in my last semester at, at Geneseo. Um, but I really felt more uh, kind of at home, uh, theoretically speaking, right, in, uh, in English. And so when I got to, uh, um, to grad school in my first semester, I took a, a, a class with Maya Poe on writing assessment. And this was really my introduction to writing studies. And, uh, you know, um, she really encouraged me uh, to think about the overlap between that and the empirical methods that I was, uh, you know, uh, familiar with, right, and that I had some strong opinions on also. Um, and uh, I kind of realized, hey, there's this whole field out there that's doing what um, I what I was doing and didn't realize that other people were doing, which was looking at the uh, uh you know um the writing practices really of um uh practitioners in these two spaces so you mentioned northeastern university you mentioned dr maya pope uh how did you get to from you know western new york to back east <laughs> uh to northeastern in boston uh, why did you decide to go there and then did you go into a dual program that led you from MA to PhD or why did you just decide to stay and get the PhD there? Yeah. So, um, uh, th there are a couple of, uh, ways that I wound up at Northeastern. Um, one of them is, uh, doing that digital humanities work with Paul Schacht. Um, uh, a lot of that involved the TEI, um, the, uh, which is the Text Encoding Initiative, and that's um, an XML-based language that is um, uh, for encoding text and doing digital scholarly editing. Um, and at Geneseo, this was, uh, 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 with the Digital Thorough Project, uh, the main use for this was uh, tracking uh, the changes between manuscript versions of Walden. So, um, and I was uh, kind of familiar with uh, Julia Flanders' work uh, as a result. Um, and she is in, uh, uh, was and still is in um, Snell Library at Northeastern um, and, and is a professor of practice in the English department. Uh, the other thing was that, uh, you know, as I was looking to apply to graduate programs, um, Paul Schack said, um, oh, I, you know, I think they're doing really cool things in digital humanities at 
uh, Northeastern. So um, a, a few years earlier, uh, another member of my uh, committee, uh, Ryan Cordell, uh, was was hired right there. Um, and I, uh, so I uh, applied mostly to uh, uh, work with the two of them. Uh, that was kind of my rationale. Um, I, in terms of, you know, going from Western New York to Boston, I mean, um, part of it, I did want to be back in an urban area. I mean, um, I, so I went to Geneseo. Um, I did, I wanted a campus for undergrad. Um, uh, very much. And, uh, uh, you know, but for, for grad school, um, I kind of wanted to be living in a city. Um, and, uh, so that's uh, one reason, uh, the other one, uh, you know, uh, being honest for any, um, you know, prospective, uh, PhD applicants who may be listening, uh, I, I'm, it's hard to remember, but I'm pretty sure Northeastern was the only program that accepted me. So, um, that, uh, you know, and um, I, I realized kind of in retrospect and also maybe a little bit at the um, in the moment that that's because it was a good environment for uh, for me in terms of my interests. Right. And in terms of the the, the faculty doing uh, and the work that they were doing there. Um, so uh, so, you know, I moved to Boston. It was a um, so um, I was a I applied to and was accepted to the PhD program um, as a BA applicant. Um, at Northeastern, the way that works is you uh, do an initial, uh, an additional year of coursework um, than if you uh, had come in with an MA. Um, uh, so there are folks who apply to the MA program at Northeastern, and then they uh, they stay on for the PhD, apply for the PhD program uh, after the fact. But there's also um, uh, folks who come in right, already tracked for the for the doctorate. Let's talk a little bit about your experience working on the doctorate. Uh, I want to read your dissertation title. It's something I usually do with folks I, I, I talk to. Uh, your dissertation is called "Relandscaping Digital Scholarship: A Computational Analysis of Citations." and digital humanities and writing studies. Um, I want to know more about your dissertation project, which was completed in 2022. I've got a couple of things to say that I've been talking to you about, talking to my undergraduate students about in the research methods class um, and English studies. But let's hear from you first. Tell us a little bit about your dissertation project. Well, how did it come to be? What are some of your primary arguments? And how do you look back on the dissertation one year removed? Yeah, the, um, that's a really good set of questions. Um, I, I guess speaking to uh, the first one about how it came about, um, uh, it, uh, there are a couple of points, I think, of narrative genesis um, for me. One of them was a um, uh, um, a graduate course with Julia Flanders um, called The Shape of Data in the Humanities. And that was a, a course on humanities data modeling. Um, and for a project in that class, um, I wound up um, uh, sort of um, developing a schema for a journal to uh um you know collect information and meta uh, metadata on uh, authors right and uh and on also on um the folks who they cite um so uh digital humanities quarterly of which uh julia is the editor in chief um is housed at Northeastern um, uh, because she's there. And uh, uh, one of the roles that uh, graduate students can uh, work in uh, in the English department is as a managing editor on that, on that journal. Um, so I got involved with that. And I also got involved in a project that they had called Biblio that was um, a, a little bit um, uh, uh, defunct at the time and that we, we um, uh, reanimated. Um, and that was to uh, make a, um, a database of 
the citations in uh, DHQ articles. Um, so that way, uh, it, you know, um, uh, well, there were a few different uh, goals for this project. Uh, one of it was one of them was to streamline the editorial process a little bit um, and make it easier on the folks who are encoding uh, the articles, like the managing editors. Um, and uh, the other major uh, hope of this project was to create uh, a, a data set, right, to make uh, analytics possible. So, um, so that's one way that I became interested in citations, I guess, as data, right, um, and uh, an analysis of them. Um, in terms of, uh, from like a more rhetorical perspective, um, one of my mentors in undergrad, um, a professor named Beth McCoy, um, who is an African-Americanist, um, she uh, was very uh, reflexive about attribution. That was something that was real that she stressed in a lot of her classes and uh, the politics of attribution, right? Um, the practices of uh, like when uh, writing a paper, right? And so this was something that um, I was, uh, uh, you know, my attention was directed toward um, as I was entering grad school, right? And, but uh, that also was uh, uh, something um, that I had a strong kind of ethical commitment to also. I was talking to uh, research methods, graduate, or I'm sorry, undergraduate students and research methods the other day about this exact, well, I shouldn't say that, not about this exact thing, but similar things, right, about the politics of citation and how this is an area of, I guess, I guess it's an area of every subfield of English studies, if you will, right? There are scholars in linguistics and rhetoric composition, obviously, and in other areas interested in this work. And um, what was fascinating is because it felt like a very, uh, I don't know if offhand is the right way, but it felt like very much a sentence that I just threw in when we were reviewing an article and they really latched onto it and were like, wait, what? What does this mean? What does this look like? And that was a great moment, right, for them as, as student learners. So I'm wondering if we could hear some commentary from you about the importance of this project, not just in the digital humanities, but across disciplines. Like you said about citation being um, a subject of study, right, across a, a bunch of fields. Um, I think in writing and rhetoric, the idea that citation is a rhetorical practice, uh, one that we use to shape our fields is uh, pretty well received, right? As part of the, um, uh, uh, you know, what we take to be true. Um, uh, Shirley Rose has a great article on this uh, that I use in some of my classes uh, that applies Burkean identification to citation. Uh, you know, it talks about how we anticipate multiple audiences when we cite. Um, so we're, we try to show that we're citing the right people, right, that we know what we're talking about. Um, and we also cite to highlight the work that we value. Um, and so, um, you mentioned the title of my my dissertation, right? Uh, the first part of it, disciplinary relandscaping. Um, I'm borrowing a metaphor there from Jacqueline Jones Royster uh, called uh, disciplinary landscaping, which uh, is an article that um, of hers from the journal Philosophy and Rhetoric. Um, and uh, she talks about this, the uh, the maintenance of fields, right, and how we. Uh, 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 you know, what we showcase uh, in uh, of the work that we value. Um, and uh, so my goal with this work is to take, uh, uh, you know, if we know that citation is this rhetorical practice that we use to shape our fields, um, my interest has been how citation analysis in term, in turn is a rhetorical practice. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's involved a few commitments. One is laying bare um, my analytical process uh, in the, the data analysis I'm doing. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the other one is to um, import uh, and, and really, uh, you know, um, reflexively think about the uh, importing of methods from elsewhere, like bibliometric methods. Um, and how we can use those methods and approach them in a certain way to highlight the work that we want to highlight. Um, uh, so uh, not only to uh, bridge otherwise isolated communities of scholarship and communities of practice, uh, which is one of my, uh, my commitments, right, um, as someone with multiple disciplinary backgrounds, uh, but also to um, uh, intervene in uh, citation practices and citation analysis practices that uh, can uh, marginalize certain work while uh, amplifying other work. This is incredible. And I think I could talk to you and maybe I will off the air, maybe not today, but in the future for a long time about some of the methods, right, that you use to perform this work. Um, I'm happy to talk, uh, to say a little bit yeah, about that. Please do, because yeah. This seems like uh, the type of work that is uh, exciting to me. Yeah, so um, I, I look at specifically co-citation analysis. Um, so this is uh, a method of um, counting um, the number of times that two, uh, it could be articles or uh, two authors. Uh, there's different ways of doing this depending on what you uh, put your bounds around, right? Um, uh, what you consider the object there, uh, and um, how many times that, uh, let's say, articles, right, are cited together in yet other articles. So, like, um, uh, you know, uh, Charles, say you authored an article, and uh, I, I authored another article, and then a third person cites both of us to, uh, in their work cited section, and then another author comes along and cites us both in their work cited section. As that continues to happen, you can start to infer, okay, maybe we have something that binds us in some way, right? Maybe we're thinking about uh, things in the same way. Maybe we're part of a, a similar scholarly tradition, or, you know, maybe there is a, an effort to bring together some of the things that we're doing that maybe doesn't originate with us, right? Um, so this is the, um, uh, what co-citation does as a method, and one of the uses for it, it uh, so it's used it, um, it, to a certain degree in a black boxy way in recommendation algorithms, right, uh, for uh, journal websites, things like that. Um, uh, it's been used to a degree uh, with in web tools to help with research, um, uh, tools that I introduce my students to sometimes. Uh, and it's also used in um, uh, a field called scientometrics uh, and, uh, you know, closely related to the field of bibliometrics to plot the, um, uh, the layout of research areas, to map them. Um, and this is, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, resonates quite well with Royster's metaphor, right, for, for disciplinary landscaping. And there's a lot of uh, talk in that field, uh, a lot of rhetoric about, um, uh, you know, uh, cartography, right, and what it means to map, and, uh, and a lot of uses of those metaphors. So one of the things that my dissertation is interested in is, uh, are those metaphors. And um, the so co-citation, what it produces is a network. Uh, uh, you know, it, so it uses social network analysis, which uh, is uh, a, you know, a form of representation that represents, uh, a, a, you know, um, some kind of entity, uh, in this case, papers or people, right, as nodes uh, in, in a network diagram, uh, as, uh, you know, uh, dots, essentially, and then they, those are connected with things called uh, edges, right? And uh, uh, those are the lines that connect them. And uh, that, those connecting lines represent some kind of relationship. So here that relationship is uh, that co-citation relationship. Uh, so how closely, in other words, uh, related might these two papers be, 
right, the, the, or these two works be. Um, what has been interesting to me in my uh, in my work is the degree that uh, the thresholding that one does as an analyst in saying, okay, how much uh, co-citation here is notable, right? How much of that is important? Um, it, uh, you know, how much that is a decision that you make, a rhetorical decision. And, uh, it, you know, in a, um, in a network representation, you know, uh, unless you say so, that's not always apparent, right, the, the, what those decisions are. Um, and they can really radically change the map. Uh, you know, it can change what it is that we see. Um, and uh, so what interested me as I'm looking at these, uh, uh, the metaphors in bibliometric scholarship, uh, you know, for, um, uh, you know, academic fields was some early work in uh, right around when co-citation uh, was debuted uh, as a method. Um, and so originally this um, uh, co-citation analysis was not done as a, uh, as, um, a social network. Uh, so how it was modeled instead uh, was using hills. So um, what the, uh, they did, and um, I, um, you know, I thought I wasn't going to necessarily be able to implement this uh, in my dissertation project. I thought it was going to be a little bit more speculative. Parts of it are, but I actually was able to implement a little bit more of it than uh, I thought I was going to be able to. But um, uh, what that early work did was say, okay, here's a hill that represents one of these papers. The amount of overlap between that hill and another hill um, in this landscape is that uh, co-citation frequency, right? So there, th that is uh, how close together these things uh, are in the landscape and how they're superposed, right? It has to do with um, their, how often that they're cited together. Uh, and then the height of the hill uh, has a relationship to its uh, regular citation frequency, how often it's cited in general. Um, and uh, it, uh, I can say more about what, uh, uh, you know, some of the technical details of what I wound up implementing. Uh, I'd like to eventually circle back to, uh, uh, you know, and replicate that work because it, um, uh, it, uh, represents, right, um, the, those um, spatial attributes have some semantic meaning, uh, which I think, uh, uh, which my current implementation doesn't as much. Um, but um, uh, that's where my, um, uh, that shift in metaphor for me was useful in, uh, I argue, um, getting the analysts to think about their role in thresholding because um, the height at which you're basically making a cross-section of this, uh, this mountain range, if you will, right, is that level of thresholding. So you're kind of taking a slice of that. And, um, you know, there are um, early, early attempts at, um, you know, uh, bibliometric visualization software that fully adopt this metaphor, right? And they're um, uh, things that were written for like an old version of Windows 20 years ago that like, uh, you know, uh, that I read about as opposed to uh, uh, to using. But um, I can imagine that kind of interactive experience, right? Doing, uh, uh, making good on our understandings of, um, uh, of citing and of uh, analyzing those citations as uh, rhetorical practices, right, and uh, and as um, a tool for um, really thinking about um, in a metaphorical sense, and also in uh, uh, you know both um, in uh, literally, right, and um, figuratively, uh, the position that we're working from on uh, in that disciplinary landscape. I'm so glad you mentioned about visualizing this data and what this looks like, because that's the, one of the things that I jumped through. And listeners and Greg, it's no surprise to you that this is not my area uh, exactly. So I don't know what that exactly looks like. 
Have you done any of that work of trying to figure out like what this looks like visually or do you hope to in the future? Uh, what do you, if you have, what are you seeing or finding? Yeah, so I have, um, this was, this was one of the, sorry, one second. Aria is back in the picture, everyone. <laughs> she's, she's using the, uh, she's playing with this toy that uh, my, my mom bought her. Uh, that is uh, a crinkly lily pad. <laughs> so, just like any. Uh, you know. um, so one of the. Uh, you know, the, some of the practical concerns of doing this kind of work, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, are um, activities that, you know, I uh, talk to my students about quite a bit, you know, when it comes to um, uh, collecting data, right, transforming that data um, and visualizing that data and all of the kinds of um, both practical concerns and decisions that go into uh, those uh, different activities. And um, so, you know, I knew that I wanted to bring together digital humanities and writing studies as uh, fields that I saw uh, doing uh, often, um, you know, resonant work that was not, um, uh, you know, maybe being recognized as connected, right? Um, so uh, I, uh, for the scope of a dissertation project as a proof of concept, uh, in my committee and I, we decided that I would do one journal from each of these uh, fields, uh, which is, you know, imperfect, right? Um, uh, but it, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we talk about in uh, uh, the tech writing for data science class that I teach, right, is um, the usefulness of telling uh, local stories, right, with data versus this uh, kind of pervasive narrative that uh, uh, is pushed often about, um, you know, capturing it all or the ability of data to uh, to help you to do that, right? So, um, while it's the case that, uh, you know, there were some limitations to the, uh, to the study, right? Um, it's of two, uh, uh, only two journals. It's of journals. There's a lot of, uh, you know, scholarly work that is happening beyond that. Uh, um, uh, but, uh, you know, this was, uh, both the data that were available and, uh, uh you know, related to my interest, which was inscription in, journals, right, uh, through citation. So um, uh, the the kicker, though, uh, of this is that, uh, so I chose computers and writing, uh, or sorry, computers and composition, uh, right, uh, which is uh, publishing computers and writing scholars, right? Um, and I chose digital humanities quarterly. Um, and uh, so I had uh, uh, DHQ, which uh, the citation data was in um, Web of Science, uh, which is one uh, database, right, um, that Northeastern has access to, uh, and also through the Biblio data set that we were developing. And then Computers and Composition was on Scopus, which not only did Northeastern not have access to, but um, had the cited reference data in an entirely different format. Uh, and so I was able to secure access to that data set, but the data cleaning of this and uh, of uh, and uniting the two of these separate data sets uh, into one workable one, uh, what has been a continual challenge. Uh, there is not, to my knowledge, a lot of work uh, in bibliometrics even that uh, combines bibliometric data sets together. Um, the work that does uh, is work that generally uses the publication metadata, but once cited reference data gets involved, it gets very messy. Uh, and the reason for this is, so web of science data is pretty tightly controlled. Scopus data is basically scraped from the work cited sections of uh, the articles. 
uh, that are published uh, in the in the journals that are indexed. So what winds up happening is there's a lot of variation uh, in uh, you know so um, uh, you know in uh, there will be one place where it says you know Gregory Palermo and another place it's Gregory J Palermo and may and then any also um, there are uh, you know uh, data entry errors and things like that and those all need to be regularized for analysis for for any kind of aggregation. Um, so um, that cleaning involved um, a, a being able to do what's called authority control, to recognize that the same paper is the same paper, right? Um, that regardless of how it appeared. Um, and uh, I will say right off the bat that um, I am not satisfied with uh, the um, um, the result of that uh, that for the dissertation, right? Why? Um, Why? I'm, uh, because there is still, um, I want to go back and make sure that some of the, uh, uh, while, you know, my, my primary uh, intervention or what I think of it is is methodological rather than necessarily like a finding. Um, obviously, you know, findings are interesting and important, right? Um, and we might want to know like, um, uh, you know, what are the results of this co-citation analysis of these two fields? And I, um, uh, I, I want to go back and take another pass at uh, uh, doing this uh, cleaning work, right? To, um, ensure that some of the conclusions I come to, right, are um, not artifacts of, uh, you know, uh, it not being recognized, right, that, um, uh, you know, these two nodes are the same node, right, these two uh, papers are the same paper. Um, and, uh, you know, and that is an iterative process, right? So this isn't something that, and this is something that I, I work with the students with. Um, I bring in, um, uh, uh, you know, we talk about exploratory data analysis and I bring in this uh, great blog post um, from uh, Trevor Munoz and uh, Katie Rawson in Digital Humanities uh, that, uh, the, the main argument of it is that data cleaning is an analytical process and it's an iterative process. And it's one that, you know, you don't just finish the data cleaning and move on to the next step, right? It's this continual sort of thing. Right. Um, they, they also are thinking about data cleaning as uh, a form of indexing, uh, right? So that where you are, um, uh, uh, you know, making transparent to uh, uh, to your reader, right? What it is, the transformations are that you're making, so that and uh, as sort of a, a layer, um, and uh, it makes me think of. So I'm I'm an amateur photographer, and uh, there it was a paradigm shift, you know, um, over a decade ago now, probably longer from. Uh, what's called destructive editing to non-destructive editing practices, right? So you'd bring a photo into Photoshop and change, uh, you know, at the bit level that that image, you know, you maybe you'd make a copy of it or something. And then we move to things like Lightroom, where you have some metadata that in real time is being applied to, uh, you know, the the that says, uh, hey, this is like the changes that I want to make to this image, right? So it's kind of along those lines. That's how I think about it. Um, but, um, uh, you know, so my goal in this work was to, um, uh, you know, really be transparent about that process, uh, and to, um, and I want to maintain that, uh, in, uh, you know, when I'm, uh, I've, I've taken a, a healthy, I think, uh, uh, moment of distance, right, from the dissertation since uh, starting my new role, right, and when I circle back to this, um, you know, and think about um, uh, articles that might come out of it, right, um, I want to uh, have that be a significant part of it. Healthy distance from the dissertation project, I'm not sure that's, <laughs> I'm not sure that's a real thing. I hope it is for most people, actually. What is the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy and what's your role there? Yeah, so um, 
It, uh, uh, it's a journal. Um, uh, th there are folks that probably know more about its history uh, than I do, quite honestly. Uh, but it's uh, it's housed at uh, City University of New York, CUNY. Um, and uh, it, uh, from what I know, it was, um, uh, you know, originally um, conceived out of the um, uh, the interactive technology and pedagogy program there, um, you know, so it was a place where graduate assistants could work, right? It was uh, publishing often um, uh, materials, right, for, as a venue from uh, uh, students in that program, right, and and uh, uh, or uh, alum of that program. Um, and it, it's really uh, grown since then, uh, you know, like, um, uh, insert a bunch of events here that I wasn't there for, right? Um, but into a um, what's really a uh, an experiment in collaborative journal editing, and uh, so I, um, uh, you know, they had sent out a call for um, folks who were interested in being a part of that, including graduate students, um, and that's something that we uh, maintain because uh, the. The uh, mission of the journal is formative, uh, both in, uh, when it comes to um, authors and developing manuscripts, and also in terms of uh, mentorship, right? And um, the uh, uh, you know who we bring on to the collective, right? Uh, so uh, it's folks from uh, at all stages of academic careers, uh, including in graduate students, and. Um, I had, you know, I had some editorial experience from DHQ uh, that I brought with me. Um, I, I um, on the, so on the collective, you know, there's a variety of roles that you can take um, at various points. I've been a member of the staging committee, which is, uh, you know, once an article is ready to go, um, preparing it for publication on the website. Um, I've been part of the part of the website committee, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, thinking about that publication infrastructure, right, and making changes to it. Um, and uh, I've also uh, been an issue editor, uh, which, you know, we kind of rotate that responsibility. Um, and that was uh, a, a wonderful experience. Um, I got to work with two uh, uh, truly awesome uh, people. Uh, Brandon Walsh, who um, uh, directs, um, uh, I forget his exact title, but he, uh, he directs um, uh, digital undergraduate learning in some way at the University of Virginia, um, and Kelly Hammond, who is a, um, uh, a high school level educator in New York City, um, who is uh, part of the um, uh, I think it's the maybe the master's program in English. I'm not sure. Um, at um, at CUNY, uh, and so uh, and as part of that, um, I convened a, a special forum. We called it like a, a, cluster, a cluster of articles, basically on computational pedagogy. Um, and uh, recently, uh, you know, within the last year or so. Um, uh, they needed somebody to um, uh, split the labor with um, uh, uh, my colleague, um, Sarah Lazier uh, Leola, who um, uh, in editing the, uh, the review section. Uh, so we're working right now on um, amassing a list of titles that we're gonna, um, uh, you know, kind of the way Kairos does um, for uh, that folks could review. What does it mean to be affiliated faculty in quantitative theory and methods? I imagine some listeners might have affiliations in different departments. I imagine most probably don't. And graduate students may be like, what? So could you fill us in a little bit about on what it means to be an affiliated faculty member in quantitative theory and methods at Emory University? Sure. Yeah. So um, I can say what it's not, which is a joint appointment. Um, and uh, it, uh, this is actually um, an arrangement that I, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I like very much um, because it means that, uh, you know, I don't have multiple departments to answer to when it comes to promotion um, and, and things like that. Um, uh, the way that, uh, you know, I got 
the designation what, uh, was uh, the chair of uh, quantitative theory and methods QTM brought it to a vote at their uh, faculty meeting, right? And it's largely because I was hired to teach um, uh, among other things, technical writing for data science um, at, uh, at Emory in the writing program. And this is a class that largely serves um, QTM majors and minors uh, in the, uh, so uh, there's an array of, of different options there that students have for uh, studying quantitative social science. Um, and uh, I think it's a, a, a pretty unique department uh, at Emory. It's one of the things that attracted me to the campus um, is uh, a, a program that it takes this humanistic approach to data science. Um, uh, my colleague, Lauren Klein, uh, who does have a joint appointment between um, English and QTM, um, uh, she and Catherine Dignazio uh, co-authored um, a really influential book on data feminism, uh, you know, recent, uh, in recent years. Um, she came over from Georgia Tech. Um, and uh, so she uh, she teaches uh, co-teaches with uh, with folks um, uh, classes on data justice, right? On um, uh, and on uh, I think right now they're doing one on large language models, right? From and uh, 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 I think those are at the graduate level. Um, and, and I've actually been recently appointed a graduate faculty uh, also um, as part of my role. Um, uh, as we're moving forward to, uh, because QTM is uh, developing a master's program. And uh, so we're gonna, um, uh, my colleague Ben Miller and I are going to be designing a master's level tech writing for data science class to, uh, to support that program. Um, so really my affiliated role circling back to that is um, uh, that I, I teach that course consistently. Um, and to be visible to uh, to students in, uh, in in that department, right? Uh, for um, uh, uh, you know, uh, informal advising among other things. Yes or no? Are you using Chat GPT in the classroom with your students? So I have not yet. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was actually going to uh, it, it design an entire first year writing section for the fall on machine authorship and some, you know, so as somebody who studies citation, the place where I enter that conversation and what I find interesting uh, are, for example, um, the, uh, with AI art, uh, you know, the conversation yeah, yeah. happened about, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, over intellectual property, right, and things like that. Um, and of course, as a writing pedagogue, right, um, uh, I'm involved in those conversations to some extent about, uh, you know, how is this going to affect how we teach writing? Um, my personal stance uh, that um, uh, I think I share with some other folks is that um, uh, chat GPT can be a great tool for teaching writing, right? And a, a tool that we can teach students to use and be critical of just like any other one, uh, you know, so it's not going to be, I hope, the you know, the harbinger of doom or whatever in our... Uh, I think some people think that it might be. Yeah. Um, but I will say, so um, while I'm going to bring uh, chat GPT to some extent into that class in the fall, I, I took a step back a little bit and reframed it uh, as a uh, a course on algorithmic bias uh, based on a, a course that I've um, uh, already taught. Um, one of the things that I I love to do as, uh, you know, and that Emory gives me a lot of freedom to do is to design new classes about things that I'm interested in. Um, and, uh, you know, um, that keeps me um, uh, sort of uh, engaged and I get the opportunity to uh, uh, you know, to try out new things, bring things that I've wanted to read into the classroom, right? And um, uh, but there, all I also know as a professional that there are, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's an important thing to be said for having some classes that you can kind of pull out of your back pocket and teach, uh, you know, so you don't burn out. Um, and so um, my uh, my director. Uh, you know, it encouraged me next year to uh, use um, uh, 
the next academic year is an opportunity to refine some of the classes that I already have uh, developed as opposed to develop some new ones. So ChatGPT will be coming into the fold because, uh, you know, um, I think you can uh, intuit maybe where uh, the overlap is there, right? The um, uh, we'll be talking about, you know, uh, well, what are the data that ChatGPT is trained on, right? For example, uh, what are the assumptions that the uh, that the uh, model makes about um, about writing and about text, right? Um, but uh, it uh, what I didn't want to do was. Uh, uh, put pressure on myself to start um, uh, designing a whole bunch of different activities uh, about, um, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of digital composition, right, and from uh, invention, right, um, uh, which uh, it, there are people doing amazing work with that, right, and that's something I may look at, uh, into in the future, especially uh, we're looking to diversify our, our tech writing curriculum at, under subtitles, right? And uh, that is one of them that we're uh, uh, that we're looking at. It's always fascinating uh, to me, I guess. Well, always being the last six weeks uh, to hear how people uh, find their inroad to talking about ChatGPT, whether it's through citation, whether it's through you know, managing a writing center or administering a writing program, whether it's through my own interests in privacy and digital privacy. I think that um, what you have uh, explained in your own answer related to your own research is that our field is more than poised and ready to uh, contend with artificial intelligence. And hopefully, if you're out there and you're listening, and I don't want to put words in Greg's mouth, so I'll let him have the final word. But hopefully, if you're listening, you know that this is not some end of the line dystopian uh, moment for education. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and it's something... Um, you know, I, I personally struggle with um, as a teacher, right? Um, uh, with, um, you know, I want to teach about exigent issues, right? Especially, you know, as somebody who, this is not to say they're not important, but as somebody who teaches about um, citation and say, the issues around citation, sometimes it can feel a little bit like inside baseball, right? Because uh, I'm an academic who's writing about academic practices for academics, right? Um, and there is a way that that becomes publicly relevant or relevant to students, right? And source literacy, right? And uh, in research methods um, and teaching them. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I do like to um, incorporate or link that to um, issues that I feel are really important, uh, you know, so one of these is um, uh, disinformation, right, uh, and I'm teaching a class right now on uh, a, an upper level rhetoric seminar on uh, digital rhetoric and disinformation. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, a concern of mine in there uh, is um, a balance between, you know, shock value of uh hey did you know <laughs> this right um and uh and kind of uh being able to put an uh, analytical framework on that uh uh you know that which is happening uh and the usefulness of that versus uh, um on the flip side uh you know thinking about what are the potentials of um, uh, writing and rhetoric and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, um, uh, the things that we are good at doing, right. Uh, to speak back to these kind, um, uh, these important issues. Greg, thanks for sitting for an interview today. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed learning from you. You're, you're really brilliant. I appreciate your, your chatting with me. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate you having me uh, and definitely uh, would love to talk more about, uh, uh, you know, any, any aspect of these things, especially as um, this whole chat GPT conversation continues to proliferate.
I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Gregory Palermo. They're so great. I met Greg a few years ago working on an article for JITP. They were so kind during the editorial process. We need more of that kind of kindness in the field. Also, they might be the smartest person ever. I mean it. What incredible research. I'm excited to follow along with Greg as his research trajectory unfolds. Thank you for listening to this episode of TBR Podcast. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapu, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Stepha Helix, and Jeff Speed. Thank you.